Yeah. How was your morning? Your prep? Good? Oh, I packed on Sunday, and this is now Thursday. We're heading to a match, so I've been ready for a while. I did not. I packed last night, but I was I was prepped. Everything was ready to be packed. It just wasn't actually put into bags until yesterday. But I did a good job getting all my stuff ready. I did my zeros. I got my barrel cleaned, fouled it, checked speeds, then waited a day, checked zero again, checked some speeds, did some really good practice. Yeah, I'm feeling really sporty. I didn't do any of that. Um, my biggest concern these days about getting ready for a match is forgetting something because I have all the stuff that I bring, but now when I drive to matches, there's a dozen people that want me to bring one or two things along the way, and I'm just nervous I'm going to forget that stuff. So I start by packing all my stuff, and then I have a checklist for people that text me throughout the week or the last couple of weeks, and I'll just tuck that into those things into my backpack or in the, the van somewhere. So, yeah, I think it's I'm good. It's a good idea. Yeah. It's a good idea. It's like you're handling it. Well, um, this episode... I think we'd be a good one to recap a bunch of episodes that we've went through, but not so much recap as I think we wanted to call it blowback, right? Yeah, blowback or fill in the gaps. Yeah. We, I've had many calls after the episode drops Yeah, uh, from certain people that that I know pretty well. I mean, we don't hang out, but we go to matches and, and they have my cell phone number and we talk occasionally. And I, I knew like that some... Not necessarily feelings were hurt, but some buttons were pushed and or there was some confusion uh, because it's like as soon as it would drop, like two hours later, people started calling. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I want to touch on some of those topics. And then we haven't really done a QA. and a um, If you want to get into that, I've got some, some questions. Yeah, I'll read them. That way I'll read the questions. So we can both do responses. That way you can handle the, the roading and the driving. I've got summaries here because I don't want to read the whole thing. So I guess we can okay. get through that. But... Um, one topic I wanted to touch on right away before I forget uh, number one thanks to everyone coming out and, and letting us know that these are making an impact with your match prep and your match performance I mean we've got a lot of people messaging us lately saying that you know they've increased their performance by 20% in the rankings at, at any given match up to 40%. I had someone message me last week and call me and it's like, dude, your your episode on the mindset and staying positive and hanging around with positive people, I really feel like that was a game changer for me in this last match specifically, but also in life. Like he's taking that to heart in different areas with different relationships. And that was really cool to hear because I, when we were talking about it, I thought, man, some people are probably going to think that we're just, I don't know, nitpicking and, and like worrying almost about things that are just ethereal and yeah, almost impractical and, and, and insignificant but highfalutin whatever yeah, yeah but if you can change your mindset to be something that is like always positive and focusing on focusing on the positives and then it can help you sustain those positive events and positive performances but it also like prevents you almost from thinking about the ways things can go wrong or the way things have gone wrong and it keeps the positivity in front of your mindset yeah man it's been it, i agree with you it's been absolutely awesome to get feedback from people that good and bad i mean we haven't had a lot of bad feedback i mean hey if you have bad feedback send it over to us we'd love to hear it as well um but the positive feedback on ways in which certain episodes have helped or just the fact that they have something to listen to that's been really informative that sort of stays on topic on task getting through a little bit of a little bit of humor it's kind of laid back but it's also giving them real good nuggets to use and train to that's been super cool i mean punisher was a good example i think i had 
20, 30 people at that match say, hey, I mean, I haven't met half the people that are listening. I haven't probably even met a quarter for that matter, but they, they're all, you know, coming up and saying hello. Uh, we had the same thing when we shot at K&M. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's a ton of feedback that we're getting that's positive. So thank you, listeners, everybody who's tuning in, checking it out. Um, we can't say thank you enough. Yeah, so, we've been trying to – I just – I just noticed that's kind of been following an eighty twenty rule. Somebody asked me like, "What what is the podcast like? Which where should I start? What episode should I start on?" Um, I, I told them like, "It's an eighty twenty. It's eighty percent information and twenty percent enter- entertainment." We've tra- been trying to follow <laughs> yeah. some sort of um, keeping it light and, and still keeping it interesting. Uh, what I have noticed is that, um, and this is not to call anyone out in particular, but there's a lot less people that have been going to our Facebook and Instagram pages and liking and sharing than there are actually listening to the episode. So if you guys want to find a way to help us, like go to the Facebook page, Miles to Matches, and the Instagram page, give us a like, give us a share. We do have a really good growth curve going on, but I noticed that, uh, you know, there's definitely a lot lot more people listening than have, um, you know, reached out to us and or liked and, and shared the, the post. So that really helps go a long way to, to grow the podcast. And the more we grow, the more we can get more information and more we can get um, questions that are relevant to the shooters currently and, and we can you know keep feeding you guys the stuff you want to hear so yeah so feel free to go go do that stuff yeah, I implore it helps us you. out a lot yeah. um, and it, does, it doesn't help us out monetarily I mean we're doing this for for free so yeah. it's more so that it, like if you if you have a specific episode where you listen to something cool and you go oh that was awesome hey hit pause real quick just share hey check out like this cleaning process like minute eight or something like that and just mm-hmm. give people what you liked about it or just it, it really does mean the world to us to be able to say yep that tip actually paid off for somebody or that's something that they're going to try um I, one like i think it was Ulicky. he went out and he was using the uh and garrett gee from wisconsin they uh, was using the uh, the two by one drill or the five by two five by five drill where you go <laughs> I, we haven't we haven't settled on a name, but I think five by five is going to be what we're going to call it because it is a really good drill. It's five shots, modified prone five shots um, from a bag off of the same bench. Shot two, 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 one, one, and you're just looking for your point of impact. You can use it for velocity, but he put up that drill and and actually had some really good results. And he's like, yeah, I feel really good. And uh, Garrett Gee is another one. He posted about it. And he's like, yeah, I've been listening to Miles to Matches. He's sent us some messages. We've you know chatted back and forth. And his rifle, he's like, I think I got enough sample points, but Francis may not agree. And it was like a, a 20 or a 25 round. Group. He was being sarcastic. I know he was. Yeah. But it was, it was the, the idea that obviously it's helping him by using, you know, larger samples. He had an amazing group and a good SD and a great ES. And he can take that information and use it long term. It's not just a pie in the sky number that, mm-hmm. you know, you're just saying this is what it is, like your muzzle velocity where you could be off 5 or 10 feet a second if you include a really big outlier. Um, but also with enough samples, you don't have to delete shots. Yeah, so. for sure. <laughs> um, so you, you touched on one of our bigger, um, most more popular episodes, the cleaning episode. Yep. And I think it's because there's strong opinions in both, both ways. Should you clean? Should you not clean? And to hear from two of us that have won matches and been relatively successful the last few years with the current process, I think that, that resonated with a lot of people and they wanted to hear that. Um, as soon as that episode dropped, I got an email from somebody who um, knows the owner uh actually it was either the owner or somebody yeah Yeah, yeah. something like that um terry paul and he emailed me and he's like hey um you know i 
I listened to the episode and I have some uh, updates for you, you know, because I, I really think we might have wanted to reach out to these companies before we did the episode, but man, I, you don't know what you don't know. So I, um, yeah, in a lot of I, cases we're just users. So we, you know, we know what we know, we know how it works, but having them reach out directly was pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, that happened. And then, uh, somebody who's friends with, um, Lindy Sisk, who's the guy that wrote the other article that we were referencing on, um, I don't know if I told you this, but uh, we were referencing on the episode where we talked about how your data could be off and all the ways it could be inaccurate. Yep. Um, that big sheet. Yeah, he was super excited to hear that we referenced that and was, uh, you know, totally willing to come on the podcast some someday and talk more about that. So that was that was really cool to hear and see. But but I wanted to touch on a few things because I talked to uh, Terry from Accurate Shooter Solutions. I think is the name of the the company, the parent company that makes that. Uh, or sorry, Sharpshooter Precision, Sharpshooter Precision that uh, makes the patch out wipeout products, and we had like a 30, 40 minute conversation, and I just wanted to touch on a few of the bullet points because I don't know if I shared them with you, and I wanted to share them with everyone else here. Um, he said, "This is this seems obvious, but maybe some people might not agree with this, or maybe it might resonate, or might you might just not agree with it." But he said, "Nothing happens inside the bore." of your barrel without your influence. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, that was one of the first things he said when he called, when I called him and he, he, we started talking and he said that statement like three or four more times throughout the course of the uh, conversation. So I'm really thinking that he firmly believes that. And um, if you think about a barrel from, you know, round zero to round 2000, I mean, it's a constantly evolving beast yeah it's constantly <laughs> evolving whether you're adding yeah. carbon and copper or cleaning it out or there's wear happening and there's there's all kinds of things going on inside your barrel um but ultimately he says you have the influence to um to to control the inside of your bore i mean assuming there's nothing defective with your barrel and there's not an issue with it um you you are in control of that and I was specifically asking him or referencing the um, the carbon buildup in the neck area in the freebore section, and, and he said um, that the hydrocarbons anywhere in that region, when you when you take your first few shots, will convert to carbon fouling like almost instantaneously. Um, and so he said he said the word hydrocarbons, and I you know I had to look it up, I had to kind of wrap my head around it, and there's lots of products that people use that have hydrocarbons in it and if you leave any remaining hydrocarbons in your bore or in that area um, it's going to start that process of carbon fouling pretty aggressively so i know we talked in that episode about uh about what was the um graphite uh lockies type stuff yep and i was thinking it was a more alcohol-based uh vehicle or solvent that it was what is in, but if, but I went home and I looked at the actual bottle and it says uh, naphtha, which you were right on. I mean, that's that's lighter fluid, right? Right. Yeah. So it has some hydrocarbons in the vehicle that the gra- the graphite is suspended in. Yeah. And, and to be clear, uh, graph- uh, hydrocarbons are usually things. That obviously, they have hydrogen and carbon in them, but they're um, organic compounds like that are generally petroleum based. Yeah. So anything that's a petroleum derivative or has some sort of petroleum type derivative in it um, or other versions of hydrocarbons, um, those will create, they'll break down bonds that end up as like a carbon or another hardened or compacted carbon. Yep. And there's, 
there's a shelf, and this is what he was trying to get the point across to me. There's a shelf where your neck transitions into your freebore, and it's you know fifteen thousandths per side, roughly all the way around, um, with neck clearance for your brass. And that shelf acts like a squeegee when you push a patch up, um, a felt patch, or a cotton patch, anything through there, uh, and it's gonna it's gonna squeegee off liquid from your um, cleaning process and leave it right there at that shelf. And if you don't get all that out of there and it's a, it has hydrocarbons in it, then it's going to build carbon right there. So I kept thinking about what he was saying and, and it kind of matched up with the timeline of how my process, my, my uh, cleaning process was evolving when I switched to the BR from the Dasher. And it just made a whole lot of sense. So what he said is there's no hydrocarbons in the patch out. And he said, you don't need to rinse it you don't out you don't need to apply anything afterward afterwards um after you've used patch out he said it'll stay active in your bore for up to 72 hours ish he said you can you can punch it through your bore and leave it there 24 hours if you really need to do a deep clean but that should that should soften up any carbon anywhere in your barrel and then you can as the word says in the title just patch it out and then um i think i was doing more damage than good by putting something else through it afterwards that had hydrocarbons that was allowing that carbon to build up right in that area. I thought that was super interesting. You guys yeah. can agree to disagree or I'm just feeding you the information. Yeah. I'm still not at the point where I'm going to say that's totally debunked or like totally valid. It's somewhere in between for me. Um, I still use patch out. I'm also using chameleon gel. Mm-hmm. So it's wipe out patch out. Uh, once it's clean to the point where I feel it's almost match ready, the last thing I do is use chameleon gel you know, on the way that it says you use essentially a pass or two using short strokes all the way through the bore, um, then let it sit for a few minutes, push it out. I do get a little bit of residual debris, carbon, and copper that comes out after that, but the barrel through a scope looks like flawless. Yep. Um, but from there, I'll still take isopropyl alcohol and do a bunch of swabs of isopropyl dissolvable compounds that will act as a solvent to get rid of any of the other type of aromatic and non-aromatic hydrocarbons for like oils and i'm i've been trying lockies i'm kind of running an experiment at the moment to see like 200 rounds or you know use a match where it's cleaned with lockies at the last step would be you know to run patches of lockies and then the next one will be the same thing without that so that it's just uh graphite without that carrier using isopropyl as a carrier. Mm -hmm. So what that should do is essentially allow me to test whether that carrier creates or leads to excessive fouling vis-a-vis, you know, barrel speeding up or creating carbon rings, etc. So we'll we'll see. I've been sharing my data with you uh, for this whole barrel. It's been really good. I'm at like 1,200, 1,300 rounds right now. And before I clean... The speed is exactly what it is after I clean, minus that first round. The first mm-hmm. round is like 25 feet per second slower, and then it's right back up to the average. Um, I have noticed that my SDs are smaller before I clean than after, but the average velocity is right in there. And so I'm, I'm assuming that's just because the carbon fouling over the, over the course of 100 rounds you know, creates a more uniformly slick surface in there. Yeah, and we, my we're SDs definitely are seeing the same thing then yeah. because my SD post, like say the Michigan match we shot recently, SD was a 2.6 yep. for <laughs> 10 or 12 rounds. I forget what it was um, exactly, but it was in the twos, followed by a cleaning, and it was 5.6. 
I mm-hmm. ran 20 rounds through it over the course of two or three days, and my last SD was a 3.2. So it's trending back down um, into that, you know, between two and five range for a 10-shot group, which is really, really good. And again, that, you know, just to make sure people who are listening don't think you have to shoot a two or a five SD, like, that's not the new, like, benchmark. That's just a newer barrel. The condition of the barrel being new shoots really well. It has low SDs. When you start to get an older barrel, or if you have one that has more fire cracking, all the barrels that have had more fire cracking than this one have had higher SDs generally. So, and that, I think that's just a part of, you know, a dirtier, rough bore will create or contribute to that if it's a little too rough or it has more cracking. So, I've been trying to keep an eye on that just to see what happens. And yeah, it, it starts at five, six, seven. It'll drop to a two, three, four for about an eight to 10 shot group. Um, and it'll go up a little after that, but not by much. Yeah, if you're in that five to eight range, I wouldn't worry about a damn thing. Yeah, five to ten to me is yep. completely sufficient. Yep. So. We had another question related to this topic, which was, hey, what borescope do you guys recommend? I mean, I don't really care. There's a bunch of them by the brand name Tess Long yep. on That's Amazon. That's what I'm using. That's what yep. you're using. It's the... Well, see if I, can, no, I use an I'm optical gonna, bore scope. Yeah, I'm going to pull up the exact model. That it's easy for for people who are um, looking for a model. I did share that with a couple of people. Yeah, I pulled I'm it up. I'm going to pull it too. up here. I already um, did. It's a got it. Send point, the model. Yeah, point two rod uh, diameters is, is kind of key, so you can get down to your two two three diameter stuff. Yep. And uh, it just says gun barrel bore scope cleaning camera fits point two, and it's a Teslong rigid rifle bore scope. Yep. Rigid's easier to deal with, but they do make a um, a cable one that you can pack smaller, which I have one of those. I just, I don't use it. I use one of the gunsmithing um, little optical ones um, most of the time just because I like the clarity of it, and I just don't want to hook it up to a device. I just like looking in there real quick and putting it away. I always yep. scope everything that's in the lathe anyway when I'm chambering and make sure everything's good to go, and that's just something I always have on my bench. Yep, and I'm going to add a little to that. The specific one that I'm using that I've recommended continuously uh, is the rigid 30. This is a 36-inch, yeah, 36-inch rigid camera probe, but it has an included handheld um, viewing screen. It's a little like phone-sized keypad that you just plug into the USB, so you always have access to it without having to use your phone, without having to use a computer. It's, it can pack up really portably, and it works really well to slip it in your gun case and have it with you if you want to try seeing things at matches, post-matches, or wherever you're taking it with you, at the range for that matter. So um, it's 140 bucks on Amazon right now, 139.99. The other ones with just the wand that you plug into your computer are like between 50 and 90, depending on the model. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a rigid, semi-rigid, and then like a flexible one. Um, I use the rigid one just because it's easier to maintain orientations, and it has a little like a ruler. So if you want to figure out where there's fouling that you need to kind of grab, you can just mark or index where you're at from, say, the back of your, your action, pull yeah. it out, and then you know exactly where it's at in your bore. You, so can, you can do that, that with the flexible ones, too. Yeah. If you put a piece of tape just on there it. or something with a marker, yep. there's a few different ways you can do that. The orientation, I, do, I totally agree, is easier yep. uh, to use with a rigid one. Yep. So that's that. All right, so I had another question. I'm not trying to monopolize the time here, so no, you can interject after the, this one. you got the big list. <laughs> um, I had a, a few people reach out to me after our episode on data inaccuracies with uh, ballistic solvers. And I feel like the question is answered in the episode, um, but it, it was referenced to the, the wind direction not lining up 
after a firmware update or even before that, I think people uh, weren't or weren't able to follow or didn't get the fact that um, there's two different ways that you can capture wind on the Kestrel, and that is wind with direction of fire and wind manually, right? Yes. So it defaults to manual, and that would mean that you'd have to capture your direction of fire, then you'd have to capture your wind direction every time because yep. it's going to keep that same reference from relationship from the wind direction to your direction of fire. So the easiest way we can explain, to be clear, when we say it defaults to that, new out of the box, it defaults to that. After a firmware update, mm-hmm. it, re- it defaults to that as well. So you have to check it after every firmware. There's actually a couple settings, but the primary one being that plus your uh, yards versus meters. That's a common one that people miss. That's really important to change. Um and from that, I think you've we've got most of them. The other one is just making sure that bullet length auto calculate is off uh, by default, which it should be now if you're running a newest firmware. But if you have an old firmware and you haven't updated in a while, it may still be on. So yeah, and this was buried inside of a question. The person was asking a question, but they were asking it. It took me ten minutes to go back and forth with them and figure out that that was their problem. But they were saying their Kestrel Compass wasn't updating, and it was updating, but it. They were expecting those directions to change when they they um, grabbed a new target direction yeah, and so. or maintain. And I just said, well, now we've got to the real root cause here. You just have the wrong setting in your wind direction. So, yep. I mean, if you're saying that the compass doesn't calibrate, that would be like a calibration fail response on your calibration process. And that doesn't happen very often. I've had it happen uh, if you go too fast rotating your uh, Kestrel when you're calibrating it or... Um, something around you is mm-hmm. large metal object or something like that but for the most part um, unless your compass is broken you should be able to calibrate it within a couple tries pretty pretty easily and i i do that every day t- every day i get to a match yep. i just i want it to be accurate and then i'll also i'll also review the google earth direction of fire uh for that specific range and just make sure that it's telling me the direction that makes sense within 10 20 degrees max yep. of what i expect it to actually be and then yep. you can use it for the rest of the weekend or the rest of the day. And then same thing when I show up to the range in the morning. It it's one of my things. I just calibrate the compass and double check that it's giving me an orientation that makes sense. So I want to do two things quick. First, I want to hit on the, the calibration process and one other potential reason why that would not update. You might have the right settings in. If your compass is A, calibrated, but it is not calibrated recently, it can lose its calibration. We use, usually that's a cause... Uh, that, or it's caused by magnets. If you have a magnet or a magnetic field somewhere near you or a lot of metal near you, like say you're under a big metal roof or a big metal building, the or even the ground has a lot of iron in it that can cause odd you know, magnetic fields, you may see that the magnet or the uh, compass orientation doesn't change quickly. And if you tilt it forward and back, all of a sudden, like just like you know, pointing it perpendicular to your target at your target, then you tilt it forward like, towards the ground or towards the sky and you see a major change in the orientation of the compass, it's a good good indicator that you need to recalibrate. Mm-hmm. Um, second, to think of wind direction with direction of fire versus um, manual. So the best way I can explain that is imagine you're looking at a target in front of you. The wind's coming from your right. So just point your right arm, which where it's coming from, to the right and you point your left arm at the target. You're making sort of that 90 degree from the top down. It's like 90 degrees between your arms. If you were to pick a new target using manual mode, if you now aimed your Kestrel at a new target, 
it would be the same thing as if you just rotated your whole body without changing your right arm. You stay at that 90 degree angle, you just rotate, and the, the Kestrel thinks with, in manual wind, you are still going to recapture the wind. So it keeps the same 90 degree relationship until you've A, set your target, and then B, recaptured the new wind direction. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's going to say you have a full value 3 you, o'clock. Exactly. <laughs> It'll continuously say, even if you turned 180 degrees and pointed at a target behind you, your, you know, your initial capture was from the right relative to the target you had set. Mm-hmm. So it's going to say that you're still using a 90-degree wind that's coming from the right, even though you have a new target heading. With direction of fire, on the other hand, changes that. Now, imagine you could point your hand into the wind or point your arm into the wind and just somehow lock it there. Yeah, Wherever you move your left hand, you, just, you, you keep moving it towards your target, your wind reference is always towards the actual wind that you last captured. So I think everybody change, should just so. change their settings to that because that's the most intuitive way people are thinking Agreed. about it. I yeah. don't know why it's not the default. It doesn't really matter why it's not the default. Uh, I would just, those are the two things I check after firmware update is I check the, the yep. um, yards versus meters and I go and I double check the um, wind direction with wind capture with direction of fire. Along with making sure your profiles are still in <laughs> Yeah. Which I haven't had a problem with that. No, so that's been I always really, back really it up. good. I always yep. back them up, but honestly, I have not have a, had a problem with that. And yep. these days, like, we can build a profile in three minutes and go shoot a match. It's Once you understand the variables, there's not really a lot of issues with creating a new profile on the fly. Yeah, it seems daunting, but, man, I've shot... Actually, I don't really want to say how many matches I've shot with brand new profiles just mm-hmm. to see if I could build one. And I do it in about a minute, and it lines up less than a tenth i mean without any manipulation whatsoever even from just generic bullets uh and bcs you can get it to line up very very quickly with the right inputs again once you understand all the inputs and you understand the other components like of your rifle your zero your zero offsets your scope tracking once you know all those things they could be accounted for and it makes making a profile substantially easy and precise and accurate to the real world solution okay you got a question, or do you want me to do another one? Um, I do, actually. Okay. So this one is actually kind of interesting because it just popped up, so it's a good time to do it. Um, there was a, in the Six Dasher forum, some, I had posted at some point, um, there were some questions on using different charges with different powders and all of that, but uh, in a, Tyler Reynolds asked, how many firings do you get on your brass in competition? And... That's a, a really good question, and this is around the back end, and I'll explain the precursor to this. It was the load that this gentleman was running, not Tyler, but another guy who'd asked the question, um, actually it was DC, Dan Chatton, asked about what load he should start with in a specific area um, or range. And, you know, you can never assume, and we get this a lot, but this goes to the reloading episode and load development. You can never assume that the powder you're running will have the same pressure as another powder, even though the interwebs will always tell you, blank is like blank, it's one for one, or whatever. You can't assume that. Your barrel is different, your powder is different, like your lot of powder within uh, the powder, even though it may be the same powder someone else is running, say Varget versus N150, your Varget lot is different than another person's Varget lot. Your N150 is different than someone else's in all likelihood. Your bullets are have a slight, but there is a real but very slight differential in the diameter of bullets coming off of a production line. Like, and it's in the ten thousands to be fair, but it's and bearing surface and bearing surface. Yep, all of those things change. Your primers are different. 
And it's not to say that all those things are super critical for, let's say, precision. And I'm using general terms. But it is really important to make sure you don't set yourself up for failure because if you had a powder that was faster for that lot, your bullets were bigger diameter, your barrel is rougher and, say, 2,000 rounds old and really firecracked and has a lot of copper, which creates a lot of pressure. Um, you've got carbon rings. Your primers are... You're using mag primers. They're using, you know, BR4s or something else that may not have as much pressure. All those things... Or they're using a bigger case, like, i.e., like, oh, say, a Hornady, which, generally speaking, Hornady brass has a higher volume internally than, say, a Lapua or an Alpha or something else like that. All If you add all those variables and you were to stack them, you may need one to two grains less powder. And this is like Dasher, Brs, GT, 6XC size cases. You may need one to two grains less powder to get to the same speed at a safe pressure level. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And, you know, to just take, hey, how much do I need to run? And running it at 31, because somebody else said to run 31, you might need 29, 29 and a half. And that's like, oh, you shouldn't be there. I, sh- I should be at this, and I'm, I'm a little slow. No, the rifle dictates how the brass comes out and the dimensions before and after firing versus a new case and versus a sized case. That should be your go, no-go criteria. So this is all to preface. That was the initial dialogue. And then, you know, Tyler asked how many rounds I get out of brass. Can't answer that. That's a, Yeah, that's a really <laughs> difficult question. Although I will say, you know, personally, I mean, I run them through three, four, five, six firings in a season. Uh, for about 2,000 pieces, they go through between five and six firings each. And I'll lose some here and there. I'm usually done with it after a season. Um, however... I know guys have gone annealing 20, it and 30. 20, 30 <laughs> firings easily. If, so, you're, if you're not excessively bumping your shoulders, correct. then your brass will, and you're not overpressuring, your brass will last a long time. So the two biggest failure modes that I can think of right now with your brass would be loose primer pockets, which is that's, is relative to your, your pressure that yep. you're running the cases at, and then... Um, case head separation and that is due to the brass stretching right in front of the webbing and usually as a result of the fact that you are over bumping your shoulder so if you're if you're only bumping one to two thousands three thousands your brass is going to last a long time and you're running a dasher in the 2800 range i mean i'm not a guy that goes for speed and i i'm going to just say that a different way i don't i don't care about the speed I like to run a lower speed, but but I also want to say that I don't think that a speed target is something that I believe in. I believe in a a pressure, a a happy pressure inside the case in your chamber with your bullet. And I feel like when when your pressures are happy inside the system, then you're going to have good SDs. You're going to have a good performing rifle with good precision. And it's going to last a long time. So I don't chase... A specific velocity. I know there's a lot of people out there that say I'm going for 2820, and that's my target, and I'm going to fill powder up in the case until I get to that speed, and that is probably fine because that's, you know, that's below where I would see a, a pressure in a dasher type case with a yeah. 105 bullet. I think that it it's not a bad way to go. It's just it's not that you're getting lucky either. It's that you're in a zone where it doesn't really matter. But if you start pushing it and you're in a place where the pressure of that case is, is at max or over max, I know a lot of people run over max recommended pressures and, in their cases. And inadvertently, I mean, they don't necessarily know any better right. because they don't think about it in terms of pressure. They're thinking about it in terms of speed. And this is a really good topic. This is actually the next thing I wanted to talk about just based on that question. And it was a great lead in is that 
if you are using a cartridge and you feel, oh, I'm at 2850, I bet I can get to 2900. Oh, I'm at 2900, I bet I can get to 2925. Like, you're in the wrong game. And you're in the wrong cartridge. Mm -hmm. You should be taking, I, I think of it the other way. Hey, can I take a Dasher and make it shoot like a BR? Can I take a 6XC and make it shoot like a 6GT? Can I take a 6.5 Creed and make it shoot like a 300 Blackout? But more like, consistently <laughs> and for a long time, right? Yeah. That's what you're trying to say, make it shoot yeah, like. Yeah, I am doing my best to detune a cartridge to keep it consistent where I still get decent SDs, I have better precision, I have lower recoil, I have a much softer shooting platform. If you want 100 feet more, go up. Up one cartridge. to two cartridges. Yeah. One to two cartridges. And notice I said that because you could, if I wanted 100 feet more, right now I'm running 2,800 with a dasher. That's 50 feet per second slower than what Chad's running with his BR. Mm -hmm. But I know that at 2,800, it's a smart bet that the barrel will last a long time. I'm creating far lower heat shot to shot. I'm getting less fire cracking per shot and or heat cycling. Therefore, I'm going to have a barrel that should last longer and more consistently longer for at least for me, even if it's a hundred rounds, like I don't know the real numbers here. We're still working on some of that stuff, you know, over on the AB side. Um, I go check out the academy there if you if you don't want to learn more of the nitty gritty on you know the science of internal ballistics, external ballistics. Uh, I just let you guys do the, the hard academy. work, so I don't yeah. have to. It's really cool to see, you know. But I've been doing this on my own barrels, trying to figure out what leads to an early demise, what leads to a consistent barrel. Um, I've had some barrels that have shot out really fast. And the, the commonality there is that generally when they start shooting poor, there's a lot of fire cracking in areas I would otherwise not see it. Mm -hmm. So backing off on charges, backing off on pressures is a almost a sure bet that your brass will last longer. You'll have an easier time with ejection, extraction, um, and you're going to have more consistency on the rifle because it's not doesn't feel like a 7 mag out of a dasher. Like The difference between 2950, 3000 out of a dasher, which is achievable, at the expense of, you know, your brass and, and all the barrel. other stuff and your barrel versus, say, 2800 is night and day. It's like shooting literally like an overpressured six creed mm -hmm. is what it feels like at 2950 to 3000. Uh, ask me how I know. At war, I encountered that, and it was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Have so, we exhausted that question? or? Uh, yeah, I think that's okay. most of it. Just, you know, it went into doubt. The answer down. is it depends, Tyler. Yeah. <laughs> it depends. I would not be concerned about... Five to ten firings on a dasher or a BR of brass. I think so long I think as you're you fine. are lower pressure. If yep. you're high pressure and you start feeling primer pocket changes, if you have hard extraction, hard extractions. Yep. If if I'm at a match and it's raining and I have a couple that are like that, I don't even put those pieces of brass back in my bag. Yeah. You know, well, if it feels like it's hard to open the bolt. And one more caveat to this is that's in one barrel. If you switch barrels and your chamber is sufficiently small or larger than the last barrel, you can also encounter some problems that you wouldn't necessarily think are just from switching the barrel. But I've been there. It's caused me issues. If you have a very large chamber in one barrel and you try to shoot that in a next barrel that is smaller, even though it's resized, it may not be resized enough to seat and fully close the bolt with no pressure in your chamber. So I had a 6.5 barrel where a couple of pieces randomly, like probably out of a 1,000, about 100 or so, 100 to 200 were shot in a large chamber. And I sized all those down, and I was recently just practicing with my 6.5 on a brand new barrel, and it is every fifth round, to every one in four, one in five, one in six, they were closing extremely hard to the point where I could almost have to beat the bolt open to get them out. 
And the only difference uh, is that the webbing difference, you can see where the webbing and the sides of the chamber at the rear portion of the chamber is binding and it's literally blown out and it can't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm swaging it down as I'm chambering it. It expands and it locks it up. So you don't want that. If you have a large chamber, that brass will have to be small base resized or you'll have to get a die that does more work lower on the case to get it back with inspect to chamber easily in your next barrel. So that's something. So you could theoretically have brass that goes only, let's say, two, three, four firings, and it's unshootable in another chamber of the same caliber. Yeah, and some brand ma- brass manufacturers um, have different, they can take different levels of abuse, we'll just say that. Agreed. Yep. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you should try to push it to that limit. Um, so I got one here. Um, I'm not going to name the name because I don't want to call the person out. I feel like this is a, a very common very common problem that people see, and I'm going to start by asking it because I love dry fire. This is a cool question to me. Uh, it says, I dry fire religiously and have been for the last 8 to 10 months, but I find myself struggling to find a connection between live fire and dry fire. I can break a great shot with a 90-degree cr- trigger pull and uh, correct breathing when dry firing, but as soon as I move to live fire, I start slapping the trigger. You know, what can I do about this? What, what do you think about this? And that's that's the question. There's more words here, but that's kind of the gist of it. And I'll start by saying you might not be measuring your dry fire performance critically enough. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think your mental process could be stressful in the live fire scenario. And I'm stock, talking specifically at a match. Like your, your mind might be cluttered and you might have anxiety and, and endorphins and stress levels that's causing you to make a bad trigger press and slap the trigger. But aside from that, um, I know you said you've been dry firing for 8 to 10 months. Um, but the, the duration and the quantity of dry firing doesn't mean a damn thing. Agreed. To be quite honest. Um, so I'll just start by saying how I measure my dry fire performance when I'm really, really trying to determine whether I'm building the mechanics to be repeatable in a live fire scenario. So I've already said before to everybody that I um, I exhale audibly. And this, is some, this isn't something you have to do. This is just something that starts my process of engaging the trigger. So close the bolt while I'm exhaling. Um, when I get to my natural respiratory pause, I've already achieved NPA with my rifle and my body before I do this. And I am engaging the trigger with the pad of my, my finger between the end, the tip of my finger and the first joint. And I am um, engaging at 90 degrees and I'm, I'm slowly squeezing the trigger. Um, there's a reason why, you know, precision rifle shooters and, and competition shooters don't say they pulled the trigger. They're pressing the trigger. They're pressing through the wobble. They're pressing through the break of the trigger and they're following through. So we, we use the word press. Um, and then when that trigger breaks in a dry fire scenario, um, I'm going to follow through, and that's my first criteria. But then second criteria, after the, the pin has fallen, fallen, I am looking at the reticle to see what it did. Did it move left? Did it move right? Did it move up? Did it move down? Um, and I am not satisfied that my process is perfect unless that reticle doesn't move. It's either a trigger press that's left less than optimal, or it is um, that the rifle or rifle my body NBA. wasn't yep. at its natural point of aim. And if you just do that, screw building the position, the hell with everything else. Like, don't put yourself under time crunches in a dry fire scenario until you have this down. This needs to be ingrained in your DNA so that your rifle is at NPA, 
your uh, body's at MPA and your trigger press is perfect so that that reticle doesn't move. And I think I told you this before we drove to the last match. Like, it took me almost two hours to get back into the groove because I hadn't dry fired for a while. And I'm like, you know what? I want, I need to go back and look at this and make sure it's perfect before we drive to this next HG Cup match. Like, it took me almost two hours of just one-shot drills where I stood up, um, re- broke my position and built it again, and then pressed that trigger. And I didn't press the trigger more than once per time, per build. And then I would stand up and do it again. And it took me almost two hours to get it to where my reticle wasn't moving at all each time. Mm-hmm. That's really similar to how my practice was this week. Um, I spent two, two and a half hours on the range sending 50 rounds total. And of that, I also sent about, well, 500 total presses, so 450 dry fires in the same time. And, I mean, just I would get on one prop. There's about six props on the range that I practice at. I would get on a prop, dry fire at a sub-1 MOA target at 300 yards. Reticle should not move at all. But it did for the first hour. Like I was fighting from dead perfect to jumping high and right. Dead perfect, jumping high and right. And I, when I say this, I'm saying it goes from the center of a three-inch target to the edge of a three-inch target at 300 yards. So a one MOA target, it's moving about half MOA post just from the click, and it stops right on the edge of the target. And that's just dry firing? Dry firing. So I think most people would say that that's probably acceptable, and I'm going to say that it's not. I, I, I agree. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't ag- It wasn't acceptable. I worked, and I did it. That's why it took me an hour and a no, half I, to get I know, through the I'm rest just, of it. I wanted to dwell yeah. on that point because I feel like this is exactly what I was trying to convey. Um, you know, having your um, trigger break and your firing pin fall, and you're talking about uh, three inch at 300, so you're basically moving what a tenth and a half. Yes. When the trigger breaks, we're we're telling you that it's the that fall significant. of the firing pin and your body and all the forces between your hand on a bag, your prop, it will move between zero and one and a half tenths, just from the firing pin falling, and that is too much for me. Yeah. And so if you work to eliminate that and make sure that it might vibrate but not actually move off of your point of aim correct. when that trigger falls, or that um, firing pin falls, then. That's kind of what I was trying to describe there, and it sounds like you organically were working on that this week at the same time. So yeah. that's awesome. So that's the first part of my answer to your question, or this question. Before we leave that, I want to reiterate. When he says vib- when you say vibrate, I'm assuming what you mean is vibrate to me, or at least in my mind, is reticle is dead center on some target. It's stable. I break the shot. I might see the reticle jump or something. do something weird. It comes back to the same spot, mm-hmm. and I'm touching. So it, for me, if, whoa, we got it. There we go. Yeah, we almost had a nice little incursion with a semi. He wanted, he liked our lane better. There was no reason for him to nope, move over. There wasn't. He was probably reaching for a tool in the back of his cab. Um, what a tool. Speaking of tools, okay, so there we go. We just passed a tool. Um, a reticle, for me, my open dot or my dot in the center is on a plate. I want it to break and have the dot come back to its original position within half of where the dot would be. So, in other words, I'm. Was our what is our center? Point oh. Yeah. So I'm looking for a .02 max differential on a dry fire. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of of the dot. Yeah, when I say vibrate, I was more thinking that it could wiggle, but like you said, end up where it came from. Yep. And uh, that means that your system is able to handle that. It's at its natural point of aim with even a little bit of vibration or disruption it's it wants to be where it came from basically that's what natural point of aim means it's naturally aiming at that point so yep um yeah so that's exactly what i'm saying we're definitely confirming each other's uh goals when we're dry firing 
um, the second part of his question was like, why does it fall apart when I'm on the clock? Um, it, that's a far more complex question to answer. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it leads back to, I think it leads back to your, um, your practice, your dry fire practice and or live fire practice being more, as you described it, being more um, quantitative instead of qualitative. I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, people go to the range and say that they're going to shoot 50 to 100 rounds in a in a practice weekend, and that's their goal. Well, that's not my goal. My goal is not to send rounds at targets. My goal is to build perfection into my process. So if you think about your goal and then work towards achieving that goal, then you're going to underst- you're going to understand pretty quickly that you need to have some objectives to show up and help you build those disciplines. And I think from from this listener's question, they could do a lot of one-shot drill, live fire drills. Um, and I think there was a video a few weeks ago with Morgan King where he was doing one-shot drills and he really broke it down. So go watch that. We'll do our own someday, but uh, I would say go watch that. And you can see how he trains for time and he trains for precision and then he merges the, merges the two. Yep. And that's something that you've talked about on here with your drive yeah. fire too. Yeah, that's, that's very common. That's how I started the first year of PRS was time first so that I knew I was underneath the time hack and trying to create stress, right? Decrease time hacks, i.e. going from like PRS skill stage, going from a 60 second to a 50 second goal to a 40 second and then to a 30 second and beating your last time every single time. So five consecutive faster runs, that would be training to speed. Once you have that done and you've achieved as fast a time as you're capable of for that day, move to precision. And I don't mean move to like from a two or three or four MOA target down to say a two MOA target or a one and a half. I mean, to a half to three quarter, take the precision of your rifle and you might add say a 10th of an MOA or a quarter MOA. Ideally it's right at, or even just a tiny bit smaller because most of your rounds will hit. But if you miss and you're missing 50% of the time on a target that's the same size as your precision of your rifle, like let's say you have a one MOA rifle and you're shooting a one MOA target and you hit 50% of the time, that's a, that's a, well, it should be higher than that. If you're practicing, if you can work towards more like 90%. Yeah. And you have to figure out where that is. If you're constantly missing low right, then it's a centering issue. But that's how I'll work extremely hard on precision after doing speed. Your body tends to retain the speed that you've created in transitions. And now you're trying to retrain a pure exhale, press, follow through, spot the shot. I mean, I think that's where dry fire really excels, though, because you don't you don't have the recoil taking you off of the target, and you can really analyze the inputs. And correct, was it an input or was it a cone of fire? It's hard to tell when you do a live fire on a target that's the same size as your group dispersion, natural group dispersion. So agreed. Um, so there's a few different points for you there. Um, I think that you're not alone when you when you say that things fall apart on the clock with a lot of people. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Of, of this game and I'll just leave it at this like my my two favorite shots um, in the game are my first shot of the stage and that happens what 20 times a weekend I love like, yep. building a perfect position and making sure that I send it in its perfect path but and the last shot of the stage and I say or sorry the last shot of the match and it kind of goes along with the last shot of the stage and I'm going to explain what I mean by that like um, I see a lot of people make nine really good shots. I don't want to say perfect shots because I rarely see anyone, including myself, making a perfect shot. But 
they make nine really, really good shots. And the last shot, whether it's time uncertainty or um, lack of taking it serious, they will make their worst press on the last shot. They'll slap the trigger. They won't follow through. They'll run the bolt before the bullet hits the target. They'll pick their head off the rifle. These are all examples of what I'm talking about. And they're going to assume it hits. And they'll already be looking at the RO for them to spit out the word impact. And they'll be like, wait a minute, that wasn't an impact? Yep. So I make it a deliberate point to hold down that trigger for an uncomfortably long amount of time on that last shot because I want to make sure that I don't leave anything on the table with the last shot. I want it to be as perfect or more perfect than the previous ones. And I love watching the last shot of a match center up on a plate and then just just relaxing and hearing the word impact, and then I'll still hold that trigger down for another couple seconds. I don't know if you've ever seen me do it before, but, but I just kind of, the, the position is so comfortable that I, I'll just sit there for five seconds. You know, it, it, if your position is not comfortable enough for you to, you know, just relax in, then you need to work on building your positions. Yeah, I agree but with it, that. It's a rewarding shot, the last shot of the match. Don't take it for granted. It is. Actually, at Punisher, Michael David Olson took some good videos and the last shot of he my always match. takes good videos. Yeah, he does. Um, the last shot of my match, if I remember, was our Culver's uh, Culver stage. It might have been. It might have been actually one later that on the cattle gate. But either way, second or second to last. There's one with of me. And if you watch each of my shots, and then you get to the very end, the very last one, bang. I mean, impact, hold, drop a mag, pull the chamber. Like mm-hmm. there is a, that skill, and that is a skill. The skill of being able to slow down. In a, and learn to internalize. You'll actually do it more and more. If yeah. you're focusing on the last, you'll do it on almost every shot. It's just, it is a skill that has to be learned, acquired, trained, and worked to. Uh, so on top of that, one of the, the other components of sort of, I call it the, the progression. The, the 10% effort that you put in as your brand new shooter will give you 80 to 90% gains very quickly. When you become better, 50% effort is required to gain 50% improvement. But then as you get even better, 90% effort is required to get just a 10%. And it continues to go that way where you're getting less of the, the law of diminishing returns applies to everything you do. As you get better, the reason they call, they're called plateaus is because you aren't going to go, you know, like say you're, let's talk bench lifting, like weightlifting. You aren't going to go from a 100 pound bench to 150 to 200 to 250, 300 to 350. 400, 500, 600, like indefinitely, there is a physical limit. As you approach that, that whatever the real limit is, it's harder and harder and harder to get to a small gain. And the gains that you have to realize aren't going to be, so if you're, you know, if you're talking in points, it's not going to be, I'm, I'm getting sevens on stages, now I'm going to clean everything per se. That doesn't generally happen. It might be from five to seven points per stage is really achievable. Seven to eight might be achievable. But from nine to tens on every stage is darn near impossible. Mm-hmm. So you can't set your expectation to be, I'm going to have X amount of gain with this amount of input. Expect it to take three, five, ten, twenty 20 times longer. I mean, good example, just the practice I did this week. I spent two hours doing dry fire and things that every new shooter should be doing and every novice and intermediate shooter should be doing two hours for just dry fire to stop my reticle moving one-tenth of a mil. Well, that two hours might have gained you two to three impacts Maybe this weekend. Maybe two to three. Yeah, exactly. But, but to your point, that two hours... Well, yeah. 
let's stop here quick. Why? Because we can get gas and I can go get a coffee. Oh, okay. But we'll finish this one up, then we'll pause <laughs> it, and we'll we'll probably go. Hey, and we're back. But um, so the um, those those two to two to three hours might have gained you two to three points over the, over this weekend yes. match. But that two to three hours, if if done in the same discipline. Um, by a newer shooter might give them 20 impacts this week. Exactly weekend. right. 100%. So yeah. that's what we're talking about on the, you know, when you're training and performing at your best, right. they're going to continue to help you get more and more impacts. Well, that was an extreme distraction. It was, yeah. Well, between two things. We had semi one. This is I'm going to call this semi two, but that one would have been on us. Yeah. So <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will come back and answer another question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wings. Oh. Uh, it's too no early. Wings. Okay. No wings yet. It's too early. All right. And we're rolling. Yeah, so no Quaker Staving Lube. Damn, oh, bummer. Man. I really kind of wanted wings, but now I'm off the wings. I had the Wisconsin cheese sandwich, cheese and salami in the middle, and then cheese on the bottom. Well, we're going to get back to questions here, but I did have yeah. somebody message me the other day saying, oh, yeah, like... Um, Francis's wing thing is a little out of hand. And I'm like, what? It's my wing thing. Yeah. He just goes along with it. <laughs> I just eat all the hot ones. <laughs> I could eat wings for every meal. Yeah, who was it that said that? I'm going to find J- him. Jason Strutt. He's like, oh. Yeah, and he's you, the he one that sent nothing. us the hiss. He has no ways to talk or stand <laughs> on. No legs. Zero legs, Jason. <laughs> like, this is coming from the guy who's like, let's go eat the Mexican joint in Lake City. And that knowing it's like going to be a terrible idea. Yeah, that, and still does it. He still claims that that place is awesome. I still disagree. So <laughs> we're agree to disagree on yep. that. The wing thing was Chad's. I just absconded it because it's like, yeah, it's great. It's finger food. Plus, I get better at my wing skills. Mm-hmm. And I just go, whatever hotness there is, I try to go hotter than that just because, what's, well, why not? What's my rule about eating chicken wings? If you have to touch it with two hands, you're doing it wrong. You're an amateur. <laughs> I'm a one-handed winger. Yeah. I'm getting better. I'm <laughs> it saves actually the other really hand good. for clean clean uh, things. Yeah, grabbing your beer mug or glass your without phone. getting it all. <laughs> or your phone, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm going to start posting wing pics, and I'm only going to send them to you. I'm going to create an entire <laughs> Francis Cologne wings and only have one friend, and I'm going to tag you in it all the time, Jason, <sighs> just because. Well, what's your next question? Um... Let's see here. I had one on seating depth that we've had a you know couple people listen to the PRS reloading episodes, and seating depth. Mine never really changes, but we both shoot between sixty to ninety thousandths. We sort of set it around sixty seventy thousandths, and it stays there through the life of the barrel. Yeah, I never check don't it chase again. it. Yeah, yep. I don't chase it. I don't check it. I just make sure it goes bang the first time. Yeah, other than that, I'm good to go. So you're uh, running a little bit longer freeboard than I am right now. Uh, yeah, I'm running the newer reamer, so mine's a one fifty. Six yeah. one fifty four one fifty four one fifty four. There yeah. you go. Which again, running the freeboard just so I can run, I can get to sixty thousandths or so easier when mm-hmm. I'm seating, so it just doesn't take up as much capacity. I don't seat it super deep in the case, but it's easy to get there, and I just stay at sixty thousandths to new and every barrel, and they shoot. I mean, yep. I don't, I don't really have anything that. else to say about it. It shoots plenty good enough. So there's that. Uh, what was the other thing I had? Our bags. So a couple people have asked uh, what bags we shoot. We use Armageddon gear bags, so mm-hmm. specifically the Schmedium, and I use the Plus One. You know, I also use the X-Wing, and we have a few other bags in the mix as well uh, that we'll use for, like, the plates. But for the most part, our support bags uh, are the Armageddon gear Schmedium and the Armageddon gear Plus One. Yes, sir. So 
that's the biggest questions. Those are the big ones I had. I'm just looking through my list. I have gotten a couple of questions also on the bino mount that I'm running and that Chad's running. That's uh, a bino mount that I make called the slide lock. Uh, it's something I made about a year, year and a half ago. It's some, it allows you to set your inner pupil distance on your binos and keep it there so that you know, someone coming up to your binos can't just hammerhead you or cyclops you and make them really small or really wide. You'll be able to index it quickly right back to where it was. And it only gives you about a millimeter or two of movement once you've locked it. So it makes it very easy to get quickly on glass. It also absorbs a lot of impact when it yeah. falls. Plus, so, yeah, it's, I was just going to say it's very stable uh, when you're looking through it, but then it also has enough flexibility if your stuff falls over that you're mostly, most of the time you're not going to break anything. Yeah, you don't snap the, uh, the little pins off of the hard mounts or rigid yeah. mounts. And this that was a product that came about because of all of the times I had broken spigots, had my stuff tip over, or had it wobbling in the wind, and like being unable to resolve targets or impacts, just knowing it did or didn't hit, but not sure where. On even on binos, no matter despite my best efforts. So this was an attempt by me to solve a problem that I was having at matches through spotting, and all things considered, I mean, I feel it. I personally, I'm a little biased, but I mean, if it works really well for what I needed. Uh, Chad ended up running one, and I think you still like it, don't you? Oh hell yeah! I wouldn't use anything so. else. It's a um, it's a relatively simple solution to a problem that a lot of people don't realize. Uh, is a distraction, you know. It's yeah. It, it solves the problem very simply, which I like. So that said, if uh, if you did want one, uh, feel free to send me a message. I know I'm just getting through another batch of them now, and uh, happy to to get those out to you if you need them. Same thing. I had a couple of people message me about the timer. That's Chad's timer. He makes the five by five crush it timer. Uh, it has a data card built in with a timer and a couple of different mounting options. It's the only tool I run on the side of my rifle to ensure that I know where I'm at in terms of time for the stage. I have all my dope and data lined up exactly where it should be, and it's all in a place that's accessible and visible without ever moving your cheek from the rifle. So I think people are finally starting to get it uh, because I've been getting more and more questions on it lately. I don't have the website able to order direct from there just yet. It's, It's in my list of things to do in the next month or so as I make a transition. But um, it, uh, if you want it, you're just going to have to message me, and I'll, I'll get it right out to you. So, mm-hmm. um, But I think it could help the uh, listener that we were talking about earlier about their, their stage fright or their um, anxiety on the stage. I mean, I find that it gives me a lot of – it ratchets down my stress level knowing how much time I have left. And I don't know if we've touched on that in your analogy of – of either ratcheting up or ratcheting down based on your activities or the way you approach things. It was a good analogy. And for me, this takes it down like every time. It takes it down mm-hmm. 50% when I look at the timer and I see that I have a ton of time left. It's just extremely calming. Yes, totally agree. Some so. matches, it's okay to ask the RO the time, but it's something that you're asking. So it, you're using energy and focus to ask it. And then they're usually giving you the time based on the last shot. So it's not accurate. And they may not hear you, which could ratchet up your stress level. Uh, but then there's other matches where they say, don't ask, we won't tell. You know, I, I shot an Arizona match like that. Um, the first AG Cup match I shot, which was two years ago, was like that. Mainly because they didn't want the ROs to give you uh, the wrong time and then have it be a debate or an Correct. issue of, of reshoot or something. If somebody says the wrong time or it's misheard, misspoke, or not 
given in a timely fashion. It's just it's it should be on the shooter's responsibility to manage that, and it's not hard to manage. There's lots of ways you can do it. So one hundred percent agree. If you ask for an RO to give you time, you are doing it wrong. End yeah. of story. Yeah. I, it's you're, dangerous. <laughs> it is. I mean, you give the ability to interpret the number that they say wrong. If someone says fifteen seconds, or they say fifty, and they mean. Like they say 50 and you hear 15. That has happened to me Ooh, yeah. on a, at a and 22 match. And I, you know, bro, I wish I had that on video. Uh, I, yeah, I went from stage Mitch, part one Mitch to part two. Yeah, and it was, I, I swear, I still swear it was 15, not 50. And lo and behold, I ended up shooting another nine or 10 rounds in, I was like seven or eight seconds. <laughs> while running to running to the position, getting down, and ten rounds on a little KYL in seven or eight seconds. It was it was a while. It felt like fifteen seconds, twenty seconds. My point simply is it will bite you at the most inopportune time. Do not ask the ROs for time. Get a watch, get a stopwatch, get a clicker, get a buzzer, or just shoot to sixty time. seconds and get a crush it. <laughs> so then you'll shoot to seventy five whenever you need to. So. Yeah, I've had a ton of people tell me that it gets them points, and I believe it because it does for me. So yep. That's it. What other topics you got? Any? Um, I had one more question that was hard to answer, and it's it's more uh, related to the one that I asked uh, earlier. I had somebody call me a couple weeks ago, and they're like, yeah, I'm prepping for Barrel Maker. Um, I, I, uh, I have a hard time calming myself before a stage. And the anxiety level is like through the roof and we've talked about this on the mental we have the mental episode and that's why he called me i think he's just like oh you guys are you guys are good with the mental stuff i said the question you just asked me i feel like we answered it um so i just reiterated the key points that i that i took away from that episode you know because we didn't Mm -hmm. plan on what we're going to talk about on that episode so i we just kind of organically talked through it. And there's a couple <coughs> bullet points I gave him. Um, number one, you need to be prepared. Uh, you need to have nothing on your mind except navigating that stage. And the comment this person made, and again, I'm not going to call out this person because I feel like this is this could be anyone. Let's just call this person any man or woman. Um, the comment this person made, they said, well, I just have a ton of stressful things going on in my life. And I said, hold on. Let me let me stop you there. <laughs> if you think for mm-hmm. two seconds that I don't have stressful things going on in my life, that everybody else in that whole you know match didn't have stressful things going on in their life, then you're wrong. That's an excuse, in my opinion. And I, it was tough love. I'm I'm just telling you, I wasn't polite about it, but I wasn't rude. I just was straight and to the point. So you have no idea what other people's levels of stress are in their yeah. life, and I don't know what yours are. And I don't, not that I don't want to know, but it's irrelevant. Um, we come to these matches, most of us, and this is one of my main reasons for doing so, is that I love doing it, but the other thing is like I can't think about anything else when I'm on the clock other than executing perfection. And that is very freeing to not think about the burdens, as you put it, the burdens of, of an adult or life yeah. comes at you really hard. Um, you know, There's all kinds of reasons that you could be thinking about other things, but you have to find a way because other people are doing it. You have to find a way to stay focused and what I said is um, the way that we do it or the way that I do it is to focus on the process steps the elements to break them down into things that I can control and this is how I operate in life in general I generally have a very low stress level um, in my 
daily life relative to the amount of responsibility that I have. And we don't talk about this stuff on here, but but I own a relatively large company and have many employees, and there's all kinds of reasons that that stuff can stress you out. Yeah. Um, and the way that I get by in that space of my brain and in that area of my life is this very similar to the way that I get by um, in the match. And I reduce, I reduce it down to things that I can control and that I realize I can have an impact on. And then I don't worry about the other stuff until I have to. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure how to teach people that, but I just, I like, I'm reiterating it right now because there is always something that you can worry about. There is <laughs> that absolutely. You can't do anything you, about you it. You can't do anything about it. Yeah, that's a really, really valid point. And it's something that early on, I've, I mean, I've kind of been a little bit lucky in that while I had a lot of stress and I had a lot of things, my my brain has always been so one-track focused that once I start doing something, that is the only thing I'm focused on. If mm-hmm. I'm saying this is what I'm doing, that's what I'm doing. And with a, with a match for me, there's always so many little things that I would get distracted and forget to do things. Well, that's where the process, as soon as I said, do this, do that, do this, do that, do this, do that, these things always have to be done. Now it's just, I have to do this. Oh, yep, now I have to do this. Yep, now I have to do this. By the time you get done with the match, there, you, you realize you haven't thought about anything but each of the small tasks. Mm-hmm. And they just, they get done, you do it, and end of story, you're on to the next one. If you, if you think about all of the other things in life that are happening, and that's a reason, man, it's, it is going to be really hard for you. And that is maybe your, and I would say that's probably the challenge or the, the match within the match for that shooter, right? Mm-hmm. They have to learn how to train their brain to ignore, absolve, and if there are things that are so pressing that you have to, you're thinking about them and thinking about them, there would be two questions I would ask on that. One of them would be, is there anything you can do right now at this moment that will have an impact on the things that are causing you stress? Meaning, if let's say I'm at a range and there's something that I know I have to do, like my alarm isn't set. Is I there anything I can do door. or I didn't close the garage door? <laughs> oh man, I'm really worried about it. Rather than not doing anything for say 20, 30, 40 minutes and just thinking, I don't know, I don't know. Just, I'm going to stop everything I'm doing. Make, send two texts, one to my daughter, one to my wife. I think I left the garage door open and I'm going to go on my phone and set my alarm from my phone. Done, put it away and guess what? There, beyond that, there is. I'm not going to wait for a reply, expect a reply or anything because there's nothing else I can do to ensure that I've, there's never going to change other than they're going to say yes or they're going to say no. Yeah, you're a thousand miles away. And they're going to make sure that it is closed when they get home. If not, it, even if you said it was open, what are you going to do about it? Just mm-hmm. let them know and walk away. I like the garage door example because it's very simple and people, I think, can relate to it. But there's a lot more complex way things more in life. Stuff. Yeah, and this I wasn't just trying some, to make light no, of it. You get I, that. I think it was the perfect example. We kind of came at it organically, and that's something that some, somebody might um, might relate to directly. Um, but to your second point, and I might have been distracted when you said it, um, if there's things outside that are distracting you and they're not as simple as the garage door, then maybe you shouldn't be there. Like That's maybe, exactly it. That was where I was going to okay. go with it. So 100%. Yeah. So if those things are yep. more important, and I know people, good friends that have been at matches, really, really good shooters, and things have happened, and they could have stayed, and their wife or whoever else would have been probably okay 
without with that without them going through that scenario. But they knew that it wasn't going to help their performance to stay, and they could do more help at home. Then that person left. Yep. Um, and I exactly I know the same thing. Yeah. So and it's happened mm-hmm. to more than one person well, shoot, that I, I know mean, of. Even me, last year at the finale. I mean, my wife was going through some things, and we talked about it. I almost didn't shoot last year's finale. Well, I ended up kind of not shooting last year's finale anyway, but... <laughs> um, yeah. That said, all the way down, I was expecting a call, hey, turn around, hey, turn around, hey, turn around. And I was fully prepared to, but I didn't even plan on leaving until Tuesday before I had to leave. Yeah. Like, one day before. And we actually made the call for me to start driving. I left at 2 on a Thursday or uh, I think it was two on a Thursday or two on a Wednesday, knowing I'm six hours later than I wanted to leave, but it wasn't until then that I could make that call. Finally did, started driving down. I never got the call, but I was thinking about it. But once I stepped foot and I passed the halfway point, and I'm like, now I am not thinking about this at all until I get a text saying, you have to come home, and then pack up, go home, end the story. But I have no more thought about this. Yeah, the human brain is a very interesting thing. And I'm, I'm, I know we're talking about these, this topic in absolutes, and it's very binary, and um, we may be missing the boat on the complexity of someone else's brain and how they deal with this stuff. I'm not denying that it's not as simple as we describe it, but that's how I compartmentalize it. It sounds like you do it very similar ways. Like it's a what, learned, learned skill. I'm yeah. going to be honest. I was what not do, like that. What do I have control over in this moment? Yeah. And then what's the best I can do to square that away? And then put it in yep. the box that says, I'm going to come back and check on that later when this is over. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very similar. When I used to do a lot of single track mountain biking. And that's why I love that is because like, if you're not 100% focused <laughs> doing a 20 mile an hour downhill on rocks and, and berms and turns, like you're going off the trail. So You better be focused. Yeah. So my, my brain was able to push out the stresses of work and life and all, all kinds of other stuff. And that's what I like about this is I found a way to, to transfer that into this sport and just stay focused on the priorities one at a time. And my brain does a pretty good job of um, creating a hierarchy of those priorities and, and ones that are linked to bigger results get a more priority, you know, yep. more failure modes. That one gets more priority. And if I can get it done ahead of time or earlier in the process, to free up mental capacity along the way, then that's great. So, yeah. so that's why I try to tell this person. Um, and then I know they have the ability to win this match we're going to. Uh, so I just told them, yeah, just fo- please just focus on the process. Um, so quit making excuses. <laughs> show up prepared and win the damn thing. Like, show up and win the damn thing. Man, it wouldn't be cool if he did. I'd, I want to win the thing. I want you to win the thing, but I also want this other person to win the match. So... Um, if any one of the three of us wins it, I'd be like super excited for mm-hmm. for any of them because that'll mean that we had a perfect weekend, pretty much. Yep. <laughs> cool. Well, that's most of what I got. I just only thing I've got before we wrap up is a shout out. Mm. Which, Who are we shouting? We're gonna shout out to Team USA. Woohoo! They're the uh, international world was world precision rifle championships are going on in France, oh, starting yeah. at the end. Well, when this episode airs. It will likely be going on, I believe, is it that weekend or is it the following? The 13th? We'll, 10th, just, 13th. we'll just say we'll try so to air this episode before that. In a week or two, that. sometime around the beginning of August, um, middle of August, but we're going to try to get this out before. Shout out to all you boys and girls um, who are going to represent the United States and go put a hammer down on all the other shooters in the world that want to come out and test uh, their precision rifle skills against uh, you know, JTAC and Morgan and... Uh, Greg Bell and 
Allison Zane and Peyton Grimes and Partain and uh, yeah, there's a ton. And which I can see is it Corson Piper? Nope, he's not going. Okay, yeah, I I know. I didn't see all the names, but I know a lot of the JTAC dudes are going. So um, I don't think between how many of them are going. I know Austin is going. I know we're going to miss somebody. Clay is going. Both Austins. Both Austins are going. Okay. Yep. Yep. Clay and Tate. Tate. Clay and Tate. Yeah. So. And then between them and Greg Bell and all the other shooters, honestly, go have fun, uh, kick ass. It's it's an honor for you guys to be out there representing for us and everybody. So yeah, just one bit of advice: don't forget to change your cast for the meters. Second bit of advice: I really feel like we are, have a disadvantage uh, in jet lag, so get your mm-hmm. guys' sleep regiment figured out in the next week or two, so yeah. that so that you are prepared for that. Um, because some of us are older than others. I mean, we got everyone from 16 years old, and then going up to I don't I don't want to call anybody out, but I feel like Paul Higley might be the older gentleman on the team. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's going to be a vastly different uh, experience than what we're used to traveling matches around here. There's gonna they're gonna have to go planes, trains, and automobiles across six or seven time zones, and that messes with your brain, which we know from talking oh, to yeah. each other on this podcast that your brain is just as important as your rifle. So. Make yeah, and that jet lag issue is no joke. So if you, you know, the first, the, I will say the only personal advice I can give on that front for anybody who has is going, that here's this, that needs it. When you get overseas, your temptation is to stay up later. And it's, it's just because you're you're hyped up, you're excited. If you can get to bed at the an hour to two hours later, especially going east, um, hour to two hours later than you would here, but that'll be several hours earlier than you should be going to bed over there. Like it'll be seven, you know, six, seven o'clock. It's already really late there. Just stay up a little late, but then get up a little early and keep buffering that back. It's Try so to hard. Get as much as you it's can. It's so hard to do though. It is extremely hard to get there and not want to go. I'm just going to stay up. Like I'm not tired because it's, it's ten o'clock or twelve o'clock or one o'clock in the morning there, and it's only six o'clock. Bring some melatonin. You, yeah, you got to do something <laughs> to knock yourself out, like Nyquil, <laughs> right away. Uh, and uh, kids you'll be, don't do drugs. Yeah, you'll be <laughs> good to get. Yeah, I didn't say that. No juniors. You can't do that. No. Um, but yeah, Morgan does that all the time. I'm not sure how he does it, but he comes. Three, he doesn't four do hours. drugs all the time. He doesn't even drink. No, he does the whole times <laughs> time dilation deal. Yeah, yeah. Job no, I agree. He has to go back and forth like a time traveler. That's why I feel like uh, being from the East Coast, we have an advantage hunt, um, shooting the matches in the United States. And I was about oh, to say I hunting. Love it. But, but yeah. it works for me for hunting, too, when I go out west for elk hunting because I get up at 4.30 in the morning out there, and it's like I'm getting Seven. up normally. Yeah, yeah it's, it's awesome. Sweet. Yeah, so I'm pumped every time we get to go west for that reason as well. We got to wake up slight, at 4? It's a slight uh, advantage. It's like waking up at 6. <laughs> All right, guys and girls. So, hey, man. Match uh, has already started. I want it every day, bro. All right. Talk to you tomorrow. See you, Holmes. Bye.